Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Johnny Future, the new novel by Steve Abey, now available from MP Publishing. Johnny Future, lover of all that exists, hopelessly unrepentant and quixotic, knows that life is calling him. He can feel it, man. Inanimate objects, exterminator icons, street signs are all talking to him, telling him he's a loser. His grandmother, Dolly Flowers, the only mother he has ever known, is in a nursing home. He hasn't seen her since she got sick. But with a stolen car and a prostitute named America in tow, Johnny's adventure to save his grandmother from death takes him from the slums of Hollywood to a wild freeway chase with the LAPD to the doorstep of fate. Steve Abey taps the well of broken hope and tattered heroism that sits beneath his nihilistic generation. A heartening, hypersexual, punch-drunk tour de force, Johnny Future ushers the drug narrative into the new American century. That's Johnny Future by Steve Abey, available now from MP Publishing. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is audio, but not visual. Uh, this could possibly be visual, depending on my word choice and the chemicals in your brain. It's good to be with you today. It's good to have you here in this realm. My guest today is Emily St. John Mandel. She is the author of three novels, the most recent of which is called The Lola Quartet. It is available now from Unbridled Books, and uh, it's generating buzz. It is arriving on bookshelves. It is departing from bookshelves. It is being ordered online. It is being passed enthusiastically from friend to friend, uh, and so on and so forth. And Emily and I are going to be talking at length in just a moment. Uh, otherwise, I don't have much to say. I'm just back in town uh, from a long weekend in Minnesota for uh, Mother's Day and for my mother-in-law's 70th birthday. So there was lots of travel. There was lots of uh, luggage. There was lots of uh, being strangely famished in airports, which is a uh, kind of an odd uh, phenomenon. The fact that every time I go into an airport, no matter how much I've, uh, you know I've eaten that day, for some reason I am strangely famished and I'm surrounded by bad overpriced food. It's a terrible place to eat, and it's a terrible place to be famished, and yet every time I go there, I feel famished, and I want food. 
and I want, uh, for some reason, uh, the food that is available, the Cinnabon, the $9 Sun Chips, whatever it is. Uh, so I went through all of that stuff. I went through baggage claim. I went through security, you know, all of these uh, travel rituals. And uh, there was a little bit of a bumpy landing, uh, which made me a little bit anxious. I'm a bit of an anxious flyer, but not too bad. And then uh, now I'm back and I'm sitting here and I'm trying to catch up and uh, I don't have anything prepared. So I'm just sort of uh, talking extemporaneously into this microphone and now uh, into your ears. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So instead of doing this for too long, why don't I just get out of the way and get on with the program? Uh, this right here, right now, is my conversation with Emily St. John Mandel, author of The Lola Quartet. Oh, wait, so you didn't know you were American until you were 22? Isn't that bizarre? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was born and raised in Canada. Um, but if you have one American parent, that makes you a de facto American citizen. So, right. yeah, I didn't find that out until my 20s. Well, why did they wait? Why didn't your parents tell you? I don't know. I guess there was never any thought of me moving down here. Um, I never thought that I'd live in the U.S. until I happened to come down here and completely fell in love with New York City. Yeah, it just wasn't on the radar for some reason. Yeah, that's interesting. So wait, now, what about New York City was it that, that seduced you? Like, you just loved, like, the the magnitude of everything, or? Yeah, exactly, the magnitude of everything. I'd lived in Toronto for a couple of years. Actually, I guess it was about four years before I moved down here. And I really liked Toronto a lot, but I felt like it wasn't as congested as I wanted a city to be. You know, I was always <laughs> walking around the it's, downtown areas. Just, <laughs> I just a lot of more skyscrapers. <laughs> yeah, I just, it's, just not, it's yeah. just not dirty and chaotic enough for me. I need more. It's not dirty and chaotic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so you moved down here from Toronto and found a way. I mean, like, I guess that's not the hardest thing to do. I mean, like, did you need any kind of work permit or anything? I guess not, right? Um, well, it's actually, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, I moved down here twice. Um, I had a, my former boyfriend lived in New York, so I came down here to be with him. And I actually thought I was an illegal alien when I immigrated here the first time. Um, so I came down with like $65 and two suitcases. Um, went broke with my ex-boyfriend. We moved up to Montreal, and then I missed New York and came back by myself um, about a year later. And that was when I found out I'd actually been an American citizen the entire time. So... Yeah, that was a nice surprise. Well, see, okay, this is this is very strange to me that your parents wouldn't just be like, "Oh, by the way, you know, you don't have to sweat it." You know, like you're, you know, you're, you're I don't think they knew to tell you the truth. 
Oh, they didn't yeah, know that. I, yeah, I don't, I don't think they did. I mean, my dad knew he was an American, but I guess... Um, did you know that your dad was an American? You know, I didn't really think about it because he'd emigrated legally to Canada. And I, I just, I don't know, when you're a kid... Or maybe this is just me. I just didn't think, um, oh, well, I wonder if he had to give up his American citizenship. Um, right, right, right. And it right. turned out he hadn't. So, you know, he'd had dual citizenship the entire time. And but you knew that so he, that, you knew that he had been originally from the United States. That was not a secret, correct? Yeah, that was not a secret. Okay. okay. Yeah, we now, visited my American grandmother. I'm just project. Yeah. I'm projecting my own, like, dual citizenship fantasy. And, and so it's like, uh-huh. you know, it would be so great to have some sort of dual citizenship in my mind. And, um, but once you have it, you start fantasizing about triple citizenship. Like, yeah. I think about the European <laughs> Union and how cool that would be. And it's like, yeah. But, but, no, but you've, got the, you've got the Canadian thing. You've got the Canadian thing where uh, you can um, go to all the different Commonwealth countries fairly easily and work, can't you? Isn't that the way that it goes with Canadians? That's a good point. I've heard that it's easier to get work visas in Commonwealth countries. I've never looked into it. Yeah, I mean, I used to, I just remember like uh, I don't know where I don't even know what I'm recalling, but somewhere in my mind, I, I guess I was traveling and talking to Canadians or maybe some people from New Zealand, and they were, you know, they were going all over the place and like working in England and, you know, I oh, guess, that's cool. Yeah, so maybe you can do that at some point. Yeah, and I will I be never go serious with that. Yeah, and no. I will be forever confined to uh, my American citizenship, but. I, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't even know. I wonder how it works. I guess if you're in the European Union, if you're in the EU, you can work in any country in the EU. I think that's... I think that's yeah, the, it's crazy. Anywhere from, like, Ireland to Spain. Ugh, that stinks. Yeah. Well, okay, yeah. so you're in, you're in Brooklyn. Um, you were in Canada, and mm-hmm. you, f- you found out that you uh, had dual citizenship. And mm-hmm. where does writing fit into all this? Like, what, you know, where did you begin as a writer creatively in a serious way? In a serious way, um, it was when I was living up in Montreal when I was 21, 22, I guess 22. Um, and, you know, I, my first career was as a dancer. I trained pretty seriously and um, did contemporary dance professionally for a very brief period of time. And there was just a really gradual period in my early 20s where I kind of just made a mental shift um, as I felt myself being drawn more and more toward writing and falling away from dance. I'm just thinking of myself less as um, a dancer, sometimes wrote on the side, starting to think of myself as a writer. So when I was up in Montreal, um, I started working on my first novel, which slowly, um, which eventually became um, Last Night in Montreal. It came out in 2009. And yeah, you know, it was just a very, it was a very strange, intense time in my life. Um, I spent a lot of time alone, which was good for the writing. And yeah, it was just something I gradually fell into around the age of 22. Okay, so what, you were in Montreal. Um, yeah. This was after you had lived in New York the first time? Yeah, so I was in New York for five months and then moved up to Montreal. Okay, so you moved up to Montreal and then you yeah. said, I thought you moved up there with a boyfriend or did that end and then that's why you were uh, alone? We broke up in Montreal. That's how I was alone all the time. So, so, yeah, you know, I was all maudlin and 22. And yeah, you were maudlin and 22 and then you started writing yeah. a novel. Exactly, yeah. Now, okay. And, you know, it's not the most upbeat novel ever, as you might expect. But yeah. still, you mean, it's, you got it published. I mean, for God's sake, that's better than most people who start writing a novel when they're 22. Well, thank you. I mean, it didn't come out until I was 29. But, yeah, it did, it, yeah, it did eventually come out. That was cool. Okay, so, like, okay, well, so that's an interesting window of time. But before I get there, um, you know, you mentioned something earlier that, uh, you know, about being a dancer that I want to talk about a little bit mm-hmm. because this, this interests sure. me. You, you said you studied... Uh, as a dancer, like, what does that mean? Like, you went to some sort of school for dance, or did you just like take lessons after school? Uh, 
Um, it was weird. Actually, I didn't really go to school when I was younger. Uh, my parents homeschooled all of us until I was about 15. So I had a lot of time on my hands um, and did a lot of dance training. So by the time I was 14 or so, I was dancing, um, gosh, I guess it was about three hours a day on weekdays and then all day Sundays. It was kind of intense. Um, and then my only post-secondary education really was um, the School of Toronto Dance Theatre up in Canada, which is a, a contemporary dance program at the post-secondary level. So, yeah, it was an intense um, education um, up until the time I graduated, around, around 21 or so. Wow. Okay, so what is, what is contemporary dance? It's like uh, modern dance, uh, Martha Graham, um, Jose Lamone. Um, it's a style that kind of arose, I guess, Isadora Duncan would have been one of the very first um, God, I'm so bad with dates. I think she was around 1905 or so. It was a long time ago. Um, so, you know, if you see, like, um, Alvin Ailey um, in New York City, um, that's contemporary dance. Yeah, it's a kind of, I don't know exactly, that's, I think of it as a much more constricted, as a much less constricted form than ballet. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. Let's say, so it's not quite ballet. It's just a little bit, there's more, uh, I don't know, it's more, it's looser. It's a little bit uh, more free-flowing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit more free-flowing, you know, and it can be intensely technical and um, extremely demanding, you know, from a technical standpoint, but it's not ballet. It's something that's um, a little bit more, I guess, evolved out of ballet, you could say. So what was the scene like? Was it like Black Swan? Was it like that? Were you, like, hanging out? With... <laughs> it probably would have been if I'd stayed with ballet. Um, modern dance wasn't quite that crazy. Yeah. yeah, it was crazy, but not that bad. Yeah. Okay. So okay. So then the other thing uh, you keep saying things that are that are taking me back. But you said that you were homeschooled, uh, which is interesting and unique. Like, what was what was the reason for that? First of all, and then what was it like? Like, what are your feelings on it? You know, I have mixed feelings about it. To be completely honest, um, I loved it at the time because there was such freedom. And you know, I was one of those kids who just wanted to read all day. So I literally did that for most of my childhood. Um, at the same time, it really wasn't much of an education. You know, my mother really tried to cover the basics, and, um, you know, some things went well. Like, it was, um, it was a requirement of the curriculum that I had to write a short story or a poem every day. So that kind of got me into the habit of writing regularly at a very young age. But at the same time, um, you know, I never learned another language as a child. Um, I'm trying to make up for that by studying French now, and I'm terrible with math. So I feel like there are gaps in my education. Um, as for the reason, I was really painfully shy uh, around kindergarten age. So my parents decided to keep me home for a year and just see how it worked. And it seemed to go okay, so I just kept going. Okay, so how painfully shy were you? I mean, clearly, like, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, in order for them to make that kind of decision, yes. you must have been really, really shy. I must have been. I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, I think I was one of those kids who wouldn't talk in public, that kind of thing. And... um my older sister had had a really difficult time in school. I think the schools weren't that great in this rural part of Vancouver Island where we lived. Um, so that was probably part of it, too. Were your parents religious or anything like that, or were they hippies? or What, like, what was the situation with they them? They were kind of, right, that's a good question. They were kind of atheist hippie types. Okay, okay. Yeah, like I, feel, I feel like in the U.S. at this point, um, homeschooling can sometimes be like a shorthand for, you know, fundamentalist, evangelical Christianity not wanting to expose your kids to the theory of evolution. But, yeah, it was nothing like that when I was a kid. Right, right, right. And so you were, and you were on a small island. You were, was, is Vancouver Island a small island? I mean, it... Actually, Vancouver Island's big. Oh, um, it is, okay. Show something yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. No, it's okay. But, um, 
Yeah, we lived there until I was about um, 10 and then moved to Denman Island, which is tiny. Um, Denman Island's about the same size and shape as the island of Manhattan, but with a thousand people. So, yeah, it was very small. Oh, wow. Okay. But it's sort of beautiful yeah. up there, too, huh? It's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. It's I a- love going back to visit. Yeah, no, it's, and it, you know, when you think about all that, like the way that, you know, such a unique upbringing and like such a unique uh, form of education, but it's quite an undertaking if you're a parent and you're homeschooling your child and you, and it's incumbent upon you to teach all those different subjects. Like I have a kid now, so I'm thinking about like, you mm-hmm. know, just like envisioning what that would entail for me if I were to try to take that on. Like there are so many right. things that uh, I think I would probably have trouble doing, like when it comes to like chemistry and I mean, the sciences. Yeah. And, and, and the, I mean, I did okay. Yeah, I did right. okay. But I mean, like past a certain level, I sort of uh, lost the thread, you know, so I would have a lot of work to do to yeah. be able to teach it. Yeah, it's a huge um, responsibility. Yeah, I think some parents, and my parents are among them, um, take the stance that the way we're taught that kids are supposed to learn isn't necessarily healthy. You know, being in a classroom with 30 kids your own age, um, kind of learning things in a somewhat rote manner. Um, you know, so, yeah, you know, different philosophies of education. It's certainly something that I would hesitate to do if I had kids. Okay, and so what about your, uh, your like, you know, now that you're an adult and, like, as you exited <laughs> your high school years and you got into, like, you know, dance school in Toronto or whatever, did you, mm-hmm. uh, did you feel socially prepared for the wider world or was there, like, an adjustment period because you had, you know, had a more limited experience of that due to the homeschooling thing? good question. You know, I felt okay. I was pretty prepared. Um, I was homeschooled, but I spent so many, so much time, um, you know, so many hours in ballet schools as a kid. Right. So, you know, I was used to interacting with my peers in that setting, so it was fine. Yeah, it's not like you were, like, isolated yeah. in the woods or something. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't like a deep forest situation. So, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a, it was not a deep forest homeschooling. Um, no, it so it would, it would make, I mean, in a way that it would make for like such an interesting author bio, you know what I'm saying? That like somehow you were, right. you were, you were raised off the right. grid, you didn't interact and like you, you're the world of your imagination. It just took over. <laughs> yeah. That'd be pretty romantic, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah it would. Um, yeah. okay. So dancing, uh, as a mm-hmm. child, this was something that you took to, um, and then you you went on to study it, I guess at at the university level, if there is, if that's the right way right. to put it. Exactly, yeah. Um, and, you know, all the way along, um, you know, were you writing while you were dancing? I guess you were doing it at, at home, you know, with your schooling, but, like, was it something that you had an inkling of doing even while you were, like, in the most intense years of your dance training, or were you thinking to yourself, like, I'm going to be a dancer on Broadway or something like that? Yeah, kind of both. I was, um, I always wrote, and it was almost a little bit compulsive. You know, when I first moved to Toronto when I was 18, um, I used to like to go for really long walks by myself and explore the city. And I'd have to bring um, paper and pen with me, or else I'd find myself, like, writing on napkins and Starbucks, co- you know, in Starbucks. I stopped <laughs> along the way. And I, you know, just, just like, drawing. it was almost a compulsion. I'd just, yeah, just, yeah, you know, I'd think of stories and ideas. Um, so writing wasn't something that I took at all seriously. It was just kind of this thing that I would, that I was done. Um, and it really wasn't until I was, um, yeah, I'd say about 22 when I really started to think of it as, okay, maybe this is something that I could do instead of dance. And I was kind of turning away from dance at that point. Why? It kind of felt like dance. I just wasn't fun anymore. So, yeah. You know, I'd done it so obsessively all my life. Um, I just, yeah, I just wasn't really enjoying it. 
Yeah, it's a really, I mean, it's a really, I mean, writing has obviously got its own set uh, of rigorous disciplines, but like when you're a dancer, that mm-hmm. is like, you, you have to be all in. I mean, right? To, especially to do it at a high yeah. level. Yeah, exactly. And you know, you blow out your knee and that's your career. Like it's, um, it's brutal. And so what do you got to, and what, you know, what, what yeah. else does it entail? Like, you know, I know obviously there's the physical training, but is there, mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to maintain, I mean, I guess the physical training sort of takes care of this, but it feels like to me when I look at these dancers, like their bodies are like, like, um, uh, under stress, you know what I'm saying? Like, is there a yeah, di- is there a diet? Yeah, like, is there like a dietary aspect to it too? It seems like it would be like a really intense athletic <laughs> regimen, just like a lot of these sports are now. Right. Where like every component of it is is considered. You know, I would say the modern and contemporary dance is a little less crazy in that regard than ballet. You know, it wasn't um, it wasn't so black swan like. Um, okay. Yeah, you know, for me it was it was a lot of rigorous training. Um, and it was also just kind of the brutality of that world. Like, you know, people like to complain that uh, writing careers are difficult. And I wouldn't say that they're easy, but I just think back to those dance auditions I had to do. And I think, you know, no matter what disappointments or, you know, um, failures I face as a writer, I'll never again be in a room with 200 other women in skin-tight clothes with a number pinned to my shirt. You know, it's just like the auditions were so unpleasant. Oh, and, my God. Um, it's, yeah, yeah, it's just... Uh, yeah, I just wasn't enjoying it by my early 20s. Does anybody take, like, performance-enhancing drugs in that world? That's a really good question. Like, were you, yeah. were you, were you on steroids yeah. at any point? I was not, but there were rumors about um, this one dancer in Montreal. Um, I can't even remember her name, but, yeah, I'm sure it happens. Yeah, just trying to, like, get over injuries yeah. or to try to get some sort of edge. Yeah, so yeah, you, exactly. So they pin a number on you, and, and you go into these auditions, and then you basically take mm-hmm. turns one by one going out onto the stage. Like, I'm picturing it like a Broadway audition where, like, the, the director is sitting sort of in the shadows out in the theater seats, like, watching, right? Right. It was close to that. It was usually in a studio. Um, you would you'd mostly be dancing in groups. You know, you'd be taught a sequence of movements, um, and then, you know, ten at a time would do it. And at a certain point... Um, they would stop and say, okay, all of the numbers that I just called can go to the left side of the room and everybody else go to the right. And, you know, you wait for your number to get called and you go where you're told. And then they turn to one side of the room or the other and say, thank you very much, you're done. Um, and then they keep on just splitting it in half, you know, throughout the day like that until, you know, you go from 200 people to 100 to 50 to 12 and they slowly narrow down to the one or two to left standing. So, yeah, it's pretty intense. Were you ever one of the one or two left standing? Yeah, I came really close with um, Toronto Dance Theater with that audition process. Um, I made it down to the top 12 out of 200 for one job. So. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's yeah. good. It's like Survivor. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Okay, so um, sort of like a, a semi-related question. Like when you uh, are good enough to be involved in modern dance, does that automatically mean that you're like a good dancer? Like, when you go out to, like, a, a wedding or something? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, does it translate? I do know what you're saying. It does not. It's kind of funny. Um, I've known a lot of professional dancers who, you know, they're spectacularly talented. And um, they blow your mind in the studio or on the stage. But they have no idea how to dance socially at a club. It's kind of these funny, awkward movements. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, some of them are really good, and some of them absolutely are not. It's it's kind of interesting. No, it's interesting. Like when you see like certain musicians, like these people who are just like so fabulously musical, 
um, whether they're like a vocalist or there's some sort of instrumentalist. And then, you know, you, you can tell that they're essentially in, you know, a rhythmic in the body, you know, so yeah, it's just, yeah, exactly. It's nice to know that people don't get everything. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, exactly. I like the idea. Of, it's somewhat democratic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So does yeah. there, so, uh, is there anything like now that you sit down to write and you've made this shift, um, obviously the discipline that you developed over the years going through all these different dance practices and you know moving through the different levels you know i have to imagine that was extremely useful to you uh, you know when you got into writing and that the actual process of mm-hmm. sitting sitting down day after day and doing the writing work um wasn't maybe quite as jarring or difficult for you because of that and then yeah were there are, there are there other aspects of dance that you think and can you know can uh, really discern uh have an impact on your writing work do you know what I'm saying? Does it inform it at all, other than yeah, the, the discipline? That's, that's a good question. You know, I really, um, I really love music. It's a big part of my life, um, and I sometimes think that maybe that goes back to the dance a little bit. You know, you spend so much time dancing to music. Um, I feel like where dance really um, informs my writing career, and not so much my writing life, but the career aspect of it, kind of goes back to what I was saying. Just that dance is so brutal, but it makes writing look. Kind of, I'm not going to say easy, but you know, like relatively speaking, um, it makes that career seem, um, you know, it's hard, but it's not that hard. Well, yeah, no, it's not. Like, it's not like we're, uh, you know, pinning numbers on writers and like the exactly, the, yeah. The editorial yeah. board at you know Penguin is like dividing us up into rooms. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe they be should. So much worse. Yeah, it could be, you know, it's, it'd be sort of interesting to see that yeah. happen. But, uh, yeah, for writers. Yeah. So, do you ever do you ever bristle when you hear writers bitching about how difficult it is? Do you find yourself saying? I don't like, bristle, but you don't. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's hard. For, yeah, I, I don't bristle, but the thought has occurred to me every so often. Like, you know, guys, it could be it could be a lot worse. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay, so then you're in Montreal, you're working on this book, mm-hmm. and it takes you seven mm-hmm. years between the beginning of this book and when it actually finally. Uh, gets published. So, God, yeah, I guess that's right. So describe that, I mean, you know, describe in a nutshell that seven-year process. Like, I'm assuming sure. there, were, there were many false starts. I'm assuming there were multiple drafts. I'm assuming there was uh, a fairly standard apprenticeship, you know. Uh, did you go through yeah. that, or, or am I misreading it? Yeah. No, I think you've got it about right. Um, yeah, it took me about four years to write that book. Um, and it was partly just a mental thing. I wasn't thinking of myself as a writer, really. You know, it kind of took a while to, like, first think of myself as a writer, and then, secondly, to really develop the discipline, you know, to sit down and work on this thing every single day. So there was a lot of time, um, you know, definitely during the first couple of years of that period of writing last night in Montreal, where, you know, I would put it down for a month or two months at a time. And it was kind of a tumultuous period in my life. You know, I, went, I moved from Toronto to New York to Montreal to New York in the space of 12 months. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot going on. I wasn't a very disciplined writer. Um, so it took about four years to write. And then I found an agent fairly easily. I just started querying um, agents on this list that somebody put together online. And um, the 13th or 14th one pulled me out of the slush pile. Uh, but then it took two years for it to sell the novel. So... Okay. Yeah, well, it was just a really tough market. So yeah. who's your agent? Or is it the same agent as it was, or has it changed? 
It's changed. Um, my original agent, her name was Emily Jacobson, and um, she actually died a couple of years ago. Um, oh, God. At the age, yeah, but, you know, she had a long, wonderful life. She was 85 years old. Oh, okay. So she good, was in her good, 80s good. when she took me on. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, my current agent is um, a former colleague of hers, Catherine Fawcett at Craze Brown. Okay. She's wonderful, too. Wow, so yeah. this, this woman was in her 80s when she took you on? She was in her 80s. This woman was remarkable. Um, Curtis Brown, the literary agency, was her first job out of college, and she never left. She was, um, she was at work three days before she died. Wow. What did she die of? Yeah. Uh, pneumonia. Came on very suddenly. Okay. Wow. That's a good yeah. life. I mean, you know, that's sort of the way you would it want is. it to go, right? You love what you do. You stay with yeah. one place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And did she, uh, like, what was it like when you get, you know, you hear from her, you query, you know, you send out these mm-hmm. queries. How long was it before you heard back? Like a couple weeks or longer? Or? Oh, that's a good question. So I sent her uh, my initial query. It was three sample chapters and a cover letter. Um, and she got back to me pretty quickly after about two weeks and said, please send me the entire manuscript. So I did that. And then it took her, um, I don't really remember, I want to say about a month before she got back to me again. And she actually rejected me. Um, but she sent me a really long, thoughtful letter full of editorial suggestions that seemed sound to me. I hadn't really gotten any substantive, substantive um, feedback on the book at that point. So I had this letter in hand with suggestions for how to improve the book. And there was really no guarantee of future representation if I took those suggestions. But I thought, um, you know, in the worst-case scenario, I'll have a better book. So... I decided to go ahead and do a rewrite. So I spent about six months doing that um, and then wrote to her again and said, would you possibly consider taking a second look? And she was very gracious about it. Um, She did take a second look, and then at that point she took me on. Well, you know what? That actually brings up a good point because if you get, if you're a writer and you query an agent or you, you know, you Mm -hmm. are trying to get something published and whether it's an agent or it's an editor and they come back to you with that level of feedback, uh, you know, I think that it would be foolish, you know, assuming you don't have other options, it would be foolish to not do what you did. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think be- you're right. Because I think, I, I think the average, like, editor or agent, if they really take the time to give that kind of, um, you know, response, if the author then is receptive to it and takes their time to act on mm-hmm. it, it, it becomes hard for the agent or the editor to turn you down that second time, assuming you've executed well. You know what I'm saying? But it's Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all, if you've addressed all their concerns, then... Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and as, you know, that also assumes that they've given you good advice. But it seems like everybody, yeah. every writer I know, like they, whenever, they, you know, whenever they receive notes, um, a good note is always obvious, you know? Like, yeah. It, it, yeah, exactly. It's very rarely yeah. like a long struggle to figure out if it's the right thing to do. Usually when somebody gives you a good note, you're just like, oh, my God, yes. You know, like, thank you. Yeah, you're like, of course, how did I miss that? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so you have this agent, and then um, when she wrote back to you that first time, did you know she was eighty-five? Like, when did you discover uh, she was the, that she was in her eighties? You know, I had my suspicions when she called me the first time. Um, she sounded like she was in her eighties on the phone. Oh, right, right. And then I, yeah, and then I went down to her office to meet her, and um, she must have stood about four foot five. Maybe I'm exaggerating. Call it five feet, but this, you know, she was a very small person who was clearly in her eighties. <laughs> no, this is it. This is yeah, this know, is where you yeah. need to exaggerate for your author bio. This is the the deep forest okay, homeschooling, okay. followed by the black yeah, swan okay, dance she was school. Four and, feet tall and in her nineties. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. 
So you walk in and did you, did you, were you, did that shake you at all or were you, were you fine with it? I mean, not that I, I, you know, I'm not trying to suggest that anybody should be like ageist or like judging people, but mm-hmm. like, you know, when you're a young author, I, I've never, I've never known any author, at least not, not off the top of my head, who had their first agent be in their 80s. Usually it seems like the junior agents are the ones who take on the younger writers. It's an odd situation. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it is an unusual situation. Um, you know, I was so charmed by her. Um, she was so clearly intelligent and knew what she was doing and on top of things that um, it really didn't concern me. I really adored her from day one. Yeah. It's, it's also kind of nice, like sort of nurturing. She's sort of like grandma, but like in a professional way. Yeah. Yeah, she was. And, you know, she took me out for lunch at um, a place called the Knickerbocker Bar and Grill. It's around the corner from Curtis Brown. And it's one of these places... Um, I did research about it once for an article a couple of years ago, and I was kind of surprised that it only opened in the 70s. It's one of those places that looks like it hasn't changed since about 1925. It's all like dark wood and, um, you know, drinks on top of the grand piano and that kind of thing. So right, right. She takes me there, and, um, you know, her first question is, would you like a drink? And it just made me realize she's from the era of the three martini launch. You know, it's, um, she was right. just from a different time in publishing. It was really interesting. That, that was a good time, though. I mean, you know, not that everybody yeah. needs to have three martinis at lunch, but it seems like there was like a, I don't know. I, I feel like this is a, a trend in my life where I feel like the good times were always before, you know, and I don't want to feel like uh-huh. that. I, don't, I think that there's, you know, I think there's some, I think there's like some commonness to that, and I don't think it's necessarily true, at least not in every instance, but sometimes it is true that, right. th- that things were better in the old days, you know? <laughs> like, and it can be. It's yeah. true. Yeah. Like I yeah. think, I think then, about, you know, you look at the obvious. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think about music that way sometimes. Like the old, you know, mm-hmm. to, like the '60s and the '70s and uh, records, and I think that might have been better, but maybe not. Maybe it's great to have an iPod yeah. with like six million songs on it. You know, right? iPods do seem magical to me too. And it's also, yeah, whenever I start going that way and thinking about how good things used to be, you know, the way people dressed and the style and the music, it's like. You know, then I think, well, but on the other hand, um, we live in a country where it's possible to have a black president, and that would never have happened in, you know, the 20s or the 30s or the 40s. So, Good point. Yeah. Good point. So yeah. do you ever feel, do you ever have like a sense, like a very like distinct sense uh, that you belong in another time or anything like that? Or do you have any kind of like past life stuff where you feel like uh, a certain kinship to like, you know? a place or a time? That's sort of a random question, but I think some people feel that way. No, it's okay. No, you know, I don't really myself. Um, I do like, I do like the, um, the clothing styles of early eras. You know, I own a couple of fedoras and some hats that look like they're from the 20s, and I like 1960s dresses sometimes. Um, you know, it's funny you're asking all this, because there's a character in my book who's very much that way, um, Gavin, who's sort of, um, I sort of wrote him specifically as a man out of time. He feels like he's in the wrong era, and he was born too late. So I think it's, um, I don't know how, um, it's probably not that uncommon. Well, yeah, and I think, too, sometimes like sometimes that feeling on a personal level is rooted in an uh, aesthetic taste, like you say. Like, maybe there's a fashion, yeah. or maybe there's, like, a, an artistic movement or, uh, you know, an era in the movies or, or an era in music or literature that you really connect with or that you wish you could. You know, when it comes to literature, like, I'm, uh, you know, there can be... Uh, experiences that I'll have reading, w- w- you know, if the book is set in, you know, uh, a past uh, era or if it was written back then and, you know, at the time was written in, you know, modern times or whatever. But I can access mm-hmm. worlds in fiction where it'll make me wish that I lived 
you know, in the 1920s or the 60s or whatever it is, you know. Just, yeah. Yeah, I have those moments. And I also find myself wishing sometimes that, um, you know, just longing for the age of good manners, which I know must have existed. <laughs> yeah, when people are more polite. Well, that, yeah, no, and the other thing, too, is like sometimes I look around and, and you know, I'm hardly the person to talk about this because I wear uh, a t shirt and jeans every day or whatever, but. Um, I look back at old photographs and the, you know, the times when men wore suits and hats all the time. And there's a part yeah, of me that's exactly. like, that's kind of like a nice little look that people used to have. There was a dignity to that, but, um, exactly. Yeah. That, yeah. Kind of it's been a recognition that the world's worth, you know, worth dressing up for. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. You go to Midtown in Manhattan and there'll be men in their $1,500, um, suits with baseball caps. And it's just like, guys, Come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or like the the suits with flip flops look. That's like always another one that like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I see women in the subway all the time in the summer. You know, they'll be wearing, you know, um like the suits, these incredibly expensive business clothes with flip flops. It's just um yeah. So, so are you wearing a fedora right now? I am not. You're not, okay. No. And like when you go out, like because Manhattan is I mean, New York City is, is speaking of all this fashion stuff, like New York City is probably uh, if not the most, among the most formal fashion cities in the states, is that fair to say? People yeah. people dress up more there than, so. than they do in like, you know, Cincinnati or something. I think that's that's yeah. fair to say. So like, yeah, do, when you, do you do that? I mean, when you go out, uh, I do. You you dress up like you're wearing like, what are you what are you doing? Yeah, um, you know, I mean, it depends on the seasoning where I'm going, but. Um, you know, nice dress, nice shoes, silk neck scarf, that kind of shtick. Um, or, you know, a fedora with a nice shirt and um, good trousers. Do yeah, you, you know, I try to look nice. I, I like dressing them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and do you look, like if someone, like if I were to see you walking down the street, would I think, like, uh, she looks like she's from another time? Is it like that kind of thing? Uh, probably sometimes with some outfits. I've gotten that comment once or twice. Yeah. Yeah, I have a couple of hats that are people, people, close hats, you know, People yeah. see me. People see me, and they're like, "He looks like he's from 2012." You know, I think like <laughs> he looks like every other jackass out there. <laughs> I need to. I need to get better. Well, you're in to, LA, right? It's pretty casual there. It's very casual. In fact, like this is the thing about Los Angeles is that um, you know people can dress up. You can do whatever you want. That's the thing. Like you can mm-hmm. do whatever right. you want, and so uh, it becomes this thing where I feel like uh, you know the nicer the place. The less dressed mm-hmm. up you are, there's like an, there's a subversive act to that, and also it's, it's also sort of a signifier uh, that you might be important because if you're in this nice white tablecloth right. restaurant and you're wearing like a t-shirt and shorts, um, like maybe you don't have to dress up. Yeah, yeah, you're you're so fancy it doesn't yeah. even matter. Whereas everybody else is like, right. you know, is on it has to wear the uniform. You know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. Yeah, I remember reading an article a couple of years ago about differences in fashion between L.A. and New York. And it was, um, they were interviewing some actress who just moved out to L.A. from Manhattan. And, um, and she was saying, look, you can't dress up for auditions. And she said, I realized that my first week. You just seem bizarre. And everybody else is in flip-flops and jeans. And it was like, yeah, it's just a different um, fashion culture, I guess. And, and it's, it, it totally baffles me how that even forms. You know, I think some of it has to, has to do with climate, I'm sure. You know, it's like obviously sunny, mm-hmm. sunny and relatively warm here all the time. But, um, yeah. You know, it's like, uh, what is it about the culture in New York or what is it about the culture in Paris or in Rome or whatever, you know, wherever you happen to be? Or, mm-hmm. and here, here's another one um, that might be like an even more 
sensational example is Tokyo, uh, which I which I have not been to, but which I am dying to go to because it's a fascination to me. But uh, you know, I look at like uh, you know video footage on television or on the internet right. or whatever, and you see how people are dressing and. Uh, yeah. I, I remember I saw some people in Los Angeles. They, you know, uh, I'm assuming they were here uh, traveling, but it was all these, you know, all these uh, women in their like Hello Kitty and like even their phones had yeah. like, bunny ears. And I'm just like, there's a whole it's thing. Wild. Yeah, it's completely wild. And I'm just, yeah. I'm curious to know how that, how does that stuff? What's the genesis point? Like, what is the initial moment that makes something like that actually explode? You know? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I read a really interesting piece um, a few years ago, and it was kind of t- it was talking about the fashions of different cities, and the hypothesis that the writer put forward, which I thought was kind of interesting, was that people were more fa- were the most fashion conscious in the cities where there was the least amount of personal space. So you go to Vancouver, and it's you know fleece and jeans. Um, Los Angeles um, is casual too, but. Perhaps it's something about the compression of the cities like Tokyo or New York or Paris, where it's almost as if your fashion is your personal space. If you know what I mean? Like, oh, that makes sense. That's actually maybe this. Yeah. that might be the smartest uh, read on it that I've ever heard. Like that. That makes total it's sense. To right? Me. It really grabbed me. Yeah. Because yeah. L.A. There's like plenty. I mean, there's not plenty of room, but there is. You know, in terms of like actual land mass um, and and po- yeah. population density, I think. You know, I don't know what it would be. Yeah. You know, people per square mile in Los Angeles compared to those other cities, but I know Tokyo is like stacked. It's got like, in, like thirty million yeah, people or exactly. something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and you know, in LA, like it's so suburban. You know, you're less likely to be in your three hundred square foot studio in the Lower East Side. Like those kinds of scenarios. Right. Right. So, have you yeah. done much traveling internationally aside from Canada and the United States? Not nearly as much as I'd like. Um, I've been to Italy a couple of times. I went to Israel once. It's fascinating. Um, I'm actually going to Paris in early June, which is really exciting. Oh, um, wow. Why, why is that? But, yeah. Um, my first novel is coming out in French in September. Um, so my wonderful French publisher is importing me to Paris for a week to do publicity. So it's really exciting. I'm really looking forward to it. So wait, your, your first novel sold in the French rights just sold? Yeah. It can take a while sometimes. But yeah. yeah, it's coming out in September. Oh, yeah. wow. Look at that. So you're going to go over there yeah. and you're going to do press. Like I have a uh, couple of friends who've gone over and done French book tour and like that can actually, they, they might even like get you on television and like, you know, they actually talk to authors wow. on TV mm-hmm. sometimes. I, I mean, at least I've heard that, you know. Yeah. I've heard that rumor too. Well, that's yeah, exciting. Yeah, it'll be fun. Gonna, yeah. I'll meet booksellers and a couple of journalists. It'll be good. Oh. And is that your first time in Paris? It is. I can't wait to see it. I've heard it's beautiful. And you're studying French. Yeah, now I'm about twelve weeks in. So, are you yeah, doing what are yeah, you doing? I really don't speak the language. Rosetta Stone. Um, I've been doing classes at the Berlitz School, which has been kind of interesting. I've really been enjoying it. You know, I feel like in many ways I'm incredibly undereducated, since um, my post-secondary education was mostly in dance studios. Right. But it's really kind of a pleasure to take a class. I yeah, I really enjoyed it. So what is yeah okay? Because like I did, I, you know, I speak like middling French, like uh, middling French mm-hmm. and middling Spanish. Like those are my two languages right. but i'm far from fluent either you know i'm functional when mm-hmm. i'm there but um right i you know when you do berlitz um is that it's just like taking like a college french course essentially it's not like you're immersed or anything like that it's not like uh, do they do yeah i guess it's like a college french course they only speak french in the classroom yeah um you got yeah so you got to take it out pretty fast i really enjoyed it i i feel like um I'm not as far along as I'd like to be, but I think that has more to do with my perfectionism than their teaching techniques. 
I think it's a good program. So you're a perfectionist? A little bit. A little bit? <laughs> don't, yeah. don't, don't, don't I guess un- I should just say yes. Yes, like, don't understand. <laughs> it. I'm just a little bit of a perfectionist. Just slightly, yeah, exactly. s- slightly perfectionist. But maybe it has to be to write novels, you know, all that obsessive revising and reworking. Well, I'm sort of coming to that. I mean, I think that, like, at least in, when it comes to your work, you know, when it comes to the writing work itself, mm-hmm. like, if you're not a perfectionist, you better have a very forgiving editor uh, who's willing to be, yeah. one, be one on your behalf. And I, I think that there are some writers who have that. Like, I think there are some writers who have, like, an, an enormous raw talent and a relationship with a publishing house and an editor, or at least it's sometimes, you know, you probably used to work like this maybe more often than it does now. But, uh, you know, I guess that can happen. But I feel like today, uh, you know, my experience anyway, is that if you don't do, if you don't bring that level of intensity to the work on the front end, Mm -hmm. it's going to be extremely difficult to find somebody to, help you shepherd it to the finish line. They sort of want as close to a finished product as possible, it seems like to me. Right, right. I think you might be right about that. You know, it's interesting now is I hear that editors are less hands-on than they used to be, but I only hear that in kind of a general way. Like the editors that I know um, will say like, no, I'm still going page by page, line by line. So yeah, I think some editors still um, do an enormous amount of work. No, mine does. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I think they do. And, and, you know, I think that's definitely the case. I think the difference may be, and, you know, I'm not the expert on this because I'm not working in that world, but, it, uh, you know, from what I've read, mm-hmm. it sounds like editors today, like one of the big differences is that editors today are editing more books per year than they used to. Like yeah. They have a much, yeah. big, they, have, they actually have a much bigger workload. Um, and so right. if they see a manuscript that's filled with all this raw talent and they can see a way forward and a way to make it great, they're probably going to decline it just because they don't have that. They don't, they can't feasibly take the time to do the heavy lifting editorially that would need to be done in order to get it ready. I think, I mean, yeah, you know, that makes sense. I think yeah. you're probably right. Yeah. But I mean, like, you yeah. know, I think it used to be like a, you know, an average of about 12 books a year and now it's like two or three times that. So it's a different world. Right. It's a different publishing world. Yeah. So yeah, we published so many books. Yeah, so you know, and, and to, just to kind of continue along the perfectionist line, like when you when it comes to your mm-hmm. work discipline, um, are you an everyday writer? I try to be. You know, to be honest, I'm not in practical. I, yeah, in actual fact, I'm not an everyday writer, but it is what I shoot for. Do you get do you get moody when you don't write for a while? Like, do you get like? Uh, I do yeah, and I get insufferable and angst ridden. Um, yeah, so I really try to write every day. It's like yeah, it's weird. I I feel like. Uh, I don't know if it's like part, like if it's a guilt thing, it's probably a little bit of both, but it's kind of like a guilt thing. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not getting my work done, but then there's also some, there's also some part of my, um, being that needs to be ventilated somehow. And if I don't write and it's not ventilated, then it's like, you know, you can feel a certain pressure build or something. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. I also feel like, um, it's something to do with having a day job, which is maybe good because it kind of forces you to write. But, you know, if I have an incredibly intense week at the day job, if say there's an NIH grant or something that I have to work on and I'm there for long hours, then I don't have time to write. Then it could start to feel like, what am I doing? You know, I'm a part-time administrative assistant. I'm I'm supposed to be a writer. Right. Yeah. So that comes into play a little bit. But I mean, you know, there there are like writers who, uh, you know, obviously the fantasy is to just make like a, a fabulous living from writing and having only writing as mm-hmm. your, you know, that, having that be your only responsibility. But um, like you say, having a day job, it can be stimulating in ways that um, 
you know, wind up serving the work somehow, like wind up serving the creative work somehow. Yeah. It can also force, it can also force you into, um, a better discipline because you don't, you have less time to, you have less time to screw around, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, the thing is just like from, um, strictly practical financial terms, um, I mean, my day job makes enough money for me to work part-time and write. But, um, you know, it's wonderful that I have time to write. But I couldn't just survive off my day job. I have to have a writing income. So that forces me to write, too. Right. Like, all right, I need to get an advance in the next 18 months for this to keep going. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. Keep this train rolling. Exactly. Um, so do you write in the morning? Like, how do you do it, then? Are you a night writer? Are you writing before work or after work? I'm pretty flexible. Um, I've got a completely flexible schedule at the job, which is really great. Um, so I can a, show up whenever I want. This is a fantastic job. It's a fantastic job. I feel incredibly lucky. Um, yeah, I show up whenever I want. I mean, within reason, I wouldn't show up at night um, and then stay for three and a half hours and then leave. So I'll sometimes write in the morning and then go into work in the afternoon, or sometimes I'll do it the other way around. Wow. That's actually perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. I love it. Oh man! And so, and you like living in Brooklyn? I mean, you feel like you're kind of like—is uh, New York going to be your home? Do you have any? You have any like uh, itch to leave there or become an expatriate somewhere else or do anything crazy like that? Or do you feel like pretty rooted? Good question. I love Brooklyn. Um, I do have moments where I think it would be wonderful to have some kind of impractical fantasy life where you know you live in Greece for six months and then Brooklyn for six months, then Italy for six months, and then back to Brooklyn. So. If I could, I would do something like that. Um, but I do love Brooklyn. It's a wonderful home base. Yeah. And do you have any kids or anything like that, or it's just a, just the two no, of you? No, no kids. Me and my husband. Yeah. Just, okay. So you can do that though. You, because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, like as, as you're saying yeah. this, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, Greece, and you take the kid, and how do you deal with the kid, and you know, it starts to complicate. Right. Complicate. Education and the rest of yeah. Right. But uh, you know, I guess you could, yeah. you know, you could always uh, take them to Greece and send them to some sort of school or school them right there on your own. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. And so, what is yeah. the you know Brooklyn? Um, you know, obviously Brooklyn is is really kind of the epicenter of American literary life. I think that's fair to say. And and I say that uh, with distinction, uh, or, or I say that distinguishing it from Manhattan. I mean, Brooklyn really is the right. epicenter. Like that is where it happens, and that's where I think the highest concentration of writers, especially literary writers of both fiction and nonfiction, live. Is that fair to say? Probably, yeah. So, do you mix? Yeah, do you mi- you mix with a lot of people in the business? Um, do Do you find that, or do you feel like between your day job and your writing work and uh, being married and coming home at night exhausted, like you're not out doing tons of literary stuff? Like, uh, it seems to me that like yeah. you just like walk out your door and like run into like Paul Auster or something. But maybe I'm wrong. That's funny. I actually walked out my door this morning and ran into a writer. Literally, did you? <laughs> but, um, See, I'm telling yeah, you. Yeah, you know. You know, I don't feel that involved with the literary world. Like, you know, I've, I've inevitably made some friends um, who are part of that world. So I feel like when I go to literary events, I'm usually going to my friends' events. Um, you know, it's pretty rare for me to go to a reading just to go to a reading. But yeah, and, you know, I do, I do feel like I know a lot of people at this point because um, it, it's strange. I don't know if the community, if the literary community is small or if, um, if I just keep writing, if I'm just in the same circuit as a lot of the same people, but... It kind of feels sometimes like you run into the same twenty people at every single reading and party and event. So, <laughs> even in yeah, Brooklyn, you know, yeah. there are a lot of people. Even in Brooklyn, yeah, so, you know, there are a lot of people I know. But um, yeah, I really maybe one event a month, tops. 
And then what about the what about the uh, the self promotional aspects of being an author? Like, do you do you find that onerous, or do you find that sort of like uh, part of the job that you just have to accept and try to have fun doing, or do you enjoy it? You know, like when you when you have a book coming out, as you do. Um, obviously, any yeah. I don't think there's a writer I know who doesn't feel a strong sense of motivation to try to help the process and get the thing out there and to help it find readers, which is totally natural and defensible. Yeah. But I think I yeah. also I also don't know hardly any writer who goes through that process and a uh, enjoys it entirely, or b doesn't find it at least on some level extremely tiresome, um, and then c. Uh, maybe finds themselves questioning its its efficacy. Is that a word? Or whether or not it works. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I do know what you're saying. Yeah, you know, I I feel differently about it every day. Like some days, um, the self-promotional stuff will really just be equal talking to interesting people on Twitter. And um, and it doesn't feel like work. It's a pleasure. You know, I've, I've met so many booksellers and talking to them on Facebook, and they're saying nice things about my book. Um you know, any days it just feels like a complete grind, and it's the last thing I want to do. Um, yeah, you know, it feels absolutely like something I have to do, even if you can't always measure the results. Do you, ha- do you have a strategy? Like, I mean, when you say you're, because like, you just said, like, I talk to booksellers. Like, some authors mm-hmm. are going out talking to readers. I think so. I think there are different levels of this. I think some authors are extremely shrewd strategically, just like in, in any yeah. profession. You know, like, do you, when you sit down, are you like, I am going to go befriend booksellers, or I'm going to go try to network with this group because this group uh, is influential and I have, uh, you know, sort of a, a, you know, a deeper understanding of the book business and how books actually sell. And so I'm going to try to act on that accordingly or no. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, not really. I mean, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like, I don't know, it's bad to say that I don't have a strategy because I sort of do, but the strategy is mostly um, engaging people, you know, like being nice and trying to find conversations. It's like being at a cocktail party. You know, you're always moving to the party looking for the next conversation and uh, looking to connect with people. Um, yeah, so it's just um, it's just this constant balancing act of trying to promote your work without being completely obnoxious. And Yeah, it's like trying you know, to tamp down, trying not to be needy, you know? It's like, it's so yeah. hard. I, have, I had this conversation with somebody the other day where it's like, you know, uh, he was saying to me, like, I don't want to seem needy. But then at the same time, right. but at the same time, when you have a book coming out and you're fighting for its life, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, you are needy, whether you like it or yeah. not, unless you, unless you're, you know, unless you have a gigantic readership that's waiting there with open arms, but that's, you know, the exception and not that's the so rule. Weird. So it's like, how do you yeah. not act needy when you are needy and you plainly are? And that's difficult. You know, it's like, you just have to kind of stay calm, yeah. be calmly needy, if you know what I mean. <laughs> just, yeah, exactly. It's called Zen and you neediness. Can do, um, yeah, you can do, like, conscious strategies, like, um, you know, like on Twitter, for example, I'll, I try to make, you know, for every self-promotional tweet, I'll try to do, like, 10 or 20 that have nothing to do with my book. Um, so, you know, so I know, I know other people who are like that, too. They've got, like, a very firm ratio down. Um, the same with Facebook. You know, I try not to make every single post about this book, but I feel strongly you should go and buy. You know? <laughs> Right. Yeah, it's not easy. The old yeah. Twitter and Facebook ratio strategy. That actually makes... I, I, yeah. like, I feel like I do that sort of subconsciously. If I start to feel like I'm doing too much plugging, I feel bad. It's like, ugh. Yeah, yeah. It's time to link some interesting articles and then come back to the plugging next week. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. so the Lola Quartet, it's coming out. Yeah. And uh, how did it start? Like, you know, what is, the, what is the genesis? How does it work for you creatively? And, you know, is it different from book to book? Or do you always start... 
in a certain way, like with a title or with a character or with a sentence or with a vision or what, whatever it is? Like, how did this originate for you? Um, the first two books originated in the same way. Both times I had a sort of a premise that I built off of. Um, so for last night in Montreal, it was just this image of a car driving across the desert. And um, for The Singer is Gone, it was this idea of um, what if a man left his wife on their honeymoon. But for this book, it was a bit different. Um, I read a couple of articles that I found really interesting over the last few years. One of them was about Florida's exotic wildlife problem. So this crazy phenomenon where oh, wait, there are wait, pythons in the suburbs. And, yeah, that, that was in The New Yorker. I, I, yeah. I, I, yeah, exactly. I shared that uh, article with more people because I was like, this is fucking crazy. <laughs> you know, like, it's wild, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 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 Like giant lizards in backyards. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. Um, well, that was the, hur- was the hurricane too, right? It was like the hurricane yeah, swept exactly. up all these animals and like spit them out all over the Florida, you know, forests or whatever. Yeah. There were greenhouses um, that had held snakes before Hurricane Andrew. After, you know, after the hurricane, the greenhouse was shattered glass and nobody knew where the snakes were. As it turned out, they'd been blown deep into the Everglades. Um, yeah, so there was that. Um, there was another article also in The New Yorker about um, the world of foreclosed real estate brokers that I found kind of fascinating and just sort of, um, the foreclosure crisis in general. I also knew that I wanted to write about um, the recession. It's just, it was so dramatic and so wild for a while, you know, that period when banks were collapsing at a rate of one or two a week. Um, so there were those things. Um, I was going to this jazz club near my apartment a lot and listening to um, a gypsy jazz guitar duo. And so that kind of ended up in the book, too. So it was just a lot of fascinations that kind of came together. Um, and the book sort of started from there. Wow, okay. And then you said, how long did it take you to write it? Uh, about two and a half years. Okay. And so uh, yeah, you, said, you said gypsy jazz? Like the you like like the yeah. Django Reinhardt type jazz. Exactly, yeah, Django Reinhardt type stuff. So, were you listening yeah. to a lot of that as you wrote? I was, yeah. I love that music. I hadn't really been exposed to it before, but yeah, it was wonderful. It's pretty amazing. Like he had like a didn't he like he he was injured in a fire, which essentially formed his yeah. his particular style because he only had use of like certain fingers or something, right? Yeah. So his story was um, he was married very young. Um, and his wife made flowers out of cellophane and paper to supplement her income. So he came home from a gig one night and um, knocked over a, a, a candle when he was 18 years old at the time um, in the trailer where they lived. And the materials that his wife used to make these flowers were incredibly flammable. So the place just went up in flames instantly. And his, uh, his hand was deformed. He only had use of two fingers after the fire. But he emerged from an 18-month convalescence with this completely new technique where he made substitutions for the chords and worked the frets with, um, with only two fingers. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating to me. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like, that's like, because I feel like a lot of times really great art comes out of limitations, you know, whether they're self-imposed yeah. or they're imposed by yeah. uh, nature or they're imposed by some sort of accident, you know, in, in this particular case. Right. But, you know, it's, it's inspiring when you think of somebody taking something like that and then turning it into something like timeless and beautiful <laughs> and, yeah and like yeah and to emerge after that accident yeah as a better musician than he had been going in you know it's kind of it was kind of incredible yeah i like him a lot yeah it's pretty cool yeah so yeah. uh so you're going to go out on book tour you're going to go to paris you've got good things going on uh, what's going to happen with this particular book okay. when you when you roll it out do you have like a big tour planned yeah i've got well i've got a few little tours planned um 
So I'm going to the South and the Midwest later this month. And um, not to be all shamelessly plugging or anything, but if anybody's interested, my website's emilymandel.com, and there's um, an events button you can click. So, yeah, I'm going to the South and Midwest. Um, I'm doing a couple of dates at the end of July in Boston and New Hampshire, and then I'm trying to put together another tour um, sort of for the Great Lakes region for some time later on the summer. And then um, I'm going to Canada in October. I, got, I just found out that I got into the Vancouver Writers' Festival. Um, yeah, so lots of small things in the works. That's good. That sounds like a lot, though. Yeah. That sounds like a, a lot of yeah. stuff. Yeah. You know, it, yeah, it is. It's a lot of short tours, but yeah. It's now, great. I'm looking forward to it. Now, are you working on another book already? Like, are you one of those writers who just never stops? Or are you, yeah. sort of, you're, or you already are? I'm one of those writers. Look at I you. Am. Yeah. Look at you. So yeah. what's going on now? What are you working on now? Can you give us any hints? I can't. I'm so early along. I don't mean to be precious about it, but I just feel like um, the whole thing will change completely in the next few months. So I try not to talk about it too much before it's done. I feel like I'll jinx myself. No, I'm the same way. I don't mind. Like, I totally respect the superstition. I get worried that like, if you start to talk. Right. And, and the reason why, it's like a superstition that has like an actual basis in reality because uh, I've had so many experiences where I've talked too soon. And I've said, like, yeah. oh, yeah, it's, it's about this, and it's going great. And then, like, you know, uh, three months later. A month later, later it's, it's about, about something else. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's, <laughs> it's not going so great, and it's, like, languishing, and you're sitting there looking at it just going, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, or you just get sick of talking about it and sick of the work, and then it's, it's bad to do you do you have like a first reader? Like, do you have uh, like somebody that you go to that you trust uh, that you show your work to before anybody else, aside from I guess your agent? Yeah, um, I show it to my husband. He's a writer too, so he's a really good reader. Okay. Um, and yeah, what I've been doing is I try to show the work to three people, um, all of whom have written novels. And um, once I get their notes back, then I do another round of revisions, um, and then I send it to my agent. I feel like I have a draft. And um, this was actually the first book that I worked with my current agent on. Um, and she had a lot of really great notes. So there was another round of revisions after I gave the book to her. Um, and only then did you send it on to my editor. And have you had, like, since the, you know, the first book went out and, and sold in, what, like two years it took? It was a long process to get it sold. Mm-hmm. Have you had a relatively easy time with the second uh, and third books? I have, yeah. I've gone with the same publisher since the first book. So, oh, um, no, okay. Yeah, yeah, so they picked them up quickly, the subsequent books. Like, you know, it was a matter of weeks, not months. That's nice. They didn't make you wait yeah. a couple of years? You know, it's sort of, you know. No, which I appreciated. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, always, it's, always nice <laughs> it's always nice when they don't string you out for a couple of years, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's actually yeah, that's actually that. that's an that's an that might be one of the longer sales processes I've ever heard of because that's the hard part. I think that's one of the hardest parts about publishing, or one of the hard parts mm-hmm. is, is just the waiting game, particularly earlier in your. The career. waiting is painful. Yeah, that's my least favorite part of it. It's um yeah, it was a weird thing. You know, I feel like these days there are a lot of books that are more than one genre, and that's um that's kind of desirable and accepted. Like. Um, I really loved that novel that Colson Whitehead just published, Zone One, which is like a literary zombie novel. Um, and then books like The Sisters Brothers by Patrick DeWitt, which is completely literary, but also kind of a Western. Um, but at the time when I was trying to publish last night in Montreal, um, the note that I got most commonly from editors was, we like it, but we don't know how to market it because it's more than one genre. So I think that delayed the process pretty significantly. Yeah, for sure. Well, at yeah. least you don't have to go through go through the crazy two year period again and it looks like you're on yeah, it looks like you're off definitely. to a great start in your career and uh congratulations okay. on 
Thank you. The new book. Best of luck on the tour. Best of luck with the other new book that you're working on that's still in its earliest forms. And um, I don't know. It'd be very interesting to see how things unfold for you in the, in the uh, years to come. Well, thank you. I appreciate the Good luck, Richard. All right, folks, there you go. That's the program. That is Emily St. John Mandel. Her new novel is called The Lola Quartet. It is available from Unbridled Books. Go get it. You can find Emily online at emilymandel.com. She's also on the Twitter at Emily Mandel. And you can find her on Facebook, too. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks once again to MP Publishing, today's sponsor. Be sure to check out Growing Up Dead in Texas, the new novel by Stephen Graham Jones. It's due out on June 12th. It is about a fire. It is about a fire that could be seen for miles. It is about a fire that split the community, a fire that turned families on each other, a fire that it's still hard to get a straight answer about. A quarter of a century ago, someone held a match to Greenwood, Texas's cotton crop. Stephen Graham Jones was 12 that year. What he remembers best, what has stuck with him all this time, is that nobody ever came forward to claim that destruction. Packed with small-town paranoia, mystery, and more secrets than your average graveyard, Growing Up Dead in Texas is Stephen Graham Jones's breakout novel. For more information, check out mppublishingusa.com and be sure to pick up your copy on June 12th. Uh, okay, so I think that's it. I think that's all I've got. Uh, it's good to be back in uh, Los Angeles. It's good to be getting back into the swing of things. Thank you very much for tuning in. Please remember that St. Anthony lived to age 105 and was illiterate and that at the age of 7 or 8, Sigmund Freud once deliberately urinated on the floor of his parents' bedroom. I will be back again soon with another verbal exchange with another author. Thank you once again, and uh, please do not urinate on the floor of your parents' bedroom or anyone's bedroom for that matter. Thank you.